Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. We haven't published uh, any C-traps for a long time, so it's time to fix this injustice. So today we are going to talk about the current situation in Ukraine, Russia and the world. As a special feature of this episode, we are going to tell you about the newest and uh, the most interesting Russian weaponry. So today I went out for a morning walk. Uh, it was quite nice, warm, birds uh, chirping, grass getting greener seemingly every second. And then the sounds of military planes interrupted my uh, peace. My first thought, shit, I forgot to check my telegram news today, and there is now a world war going on. Aerial bombings of the Uralic Mountains by the transgender brigade or something. But then I realized, ah, they're just preparing for 9th of May military parade. As always, the victory parade. It's a tried and true Russian tradition. Disrupt all traffic, flood the skies with planes and streets with soldiers every single year. So last year I got stuck in a traffic jam because of the armored column crossing. And the surrealist video block of these events is published on our Patreon. In any case, this time it will be a very troubling 9 of May parade, indeed. It will be the first one for the last 20 years that Russia expects to hold while at the state of war. So, what, what is there to say? We were always uh, vilified, literally for centuries, and all the pent-up hatred uh, that our Western partners had for us is now being released in the world. Most of Europe was united in 1941 to basically genocide Russians once and for all. Uh, they got their ass beat, and uh, for the last 77 years, experienced a violent case of uh, l'esprit du l'escalier, or staircase wit. All the tropes of the Mongol subhuman hordes, uh, raping and pillaging, basically an excuse for uh, the attempted genocide of the Russian people, now morphed into the subhuman Mongol hordes are still in toilets in Bucha. It's uh, an endless cycle. And it comes from the same source of a never-ending conflict between us. Especially it concerns the Eastern Europeans, of course, uh, various Slavic limitrophs, uh, border people, Poles, Baltics, Finns, West Ukrainians. It seems like uh, their entire identities are formed in opposition to Russia and their constant LARP sessions and as uh, SS officers, as uh, Tolkien selves or whatever desire to prove one's own Europeanness and unwarranted sense of pride. Not being able to ever catch up with Western Europe, Eastern Europe exists to hurt Russia as much as possible. And now they have their actual chance to do this. So Ukraine also is a perfect place for it because it uh, has always been a European deathmatch map. <laughs> so to top it off, Biden announced starting a land lease program to Ukraine uh, on 9 of May. Uh, it's a giant spectacle, all of this. Uh, so how do you feel about uh, upcoming Victory Day? Well, I'm actually not quite sure how to feel about the parade. Uh, obviously, 
victory day is more important than ever in times like this. But at the same time, I'm not sure if the Kremlin can manage to quite capture the vibes necessary that are, uh, should be like broadcasted. Um, I've heard that they are gonna um, have a troops from the front lines on the parade. <clears throat> so that's a good start. Um, maybe they'll have some uh, Donbass troops as well at the parade. That would be great. Um, I've actually um, yesterday I think uh, there was news that a street in Vladivostok uh, will be named after Vladimir Zhoga. Is he a Vladik native? I don't think so. Oh, interesting choice of a city then. No, no, he was born in Donetsk. Um, so the other Ukraine, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, um, there has been some debate about why the Russian armed forces don't use a lot of the newest toys in the war. And those will be showed off on the parade. So that is kind of a bad look, I believe. Not using Su-57s in Ukraine, but having them fly over Moscow for the parade. I don't know. Uh, there are probably going to be Armatas at the parade as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll see tomorrow. It's incredible how many planes, tanks and weaponry is being shown off every single year. And now it's not exception. Uh, because there are so many that um, most of it is barely used in the Ukraine. Maybe maybe they will uh, lap the revolution parade of 1941, where, where troops mm -hmm. and vehicles uh, drove directly to the front lines from the Red Square. Yeah. The greatest uh, difference between it all is that um, for the last uh, decades... 9 of May was a day commemorating the losses and basically a plea for peace, right? It's a, a very peaceful holiday. And uh, people who were jingoistic about it were shunned, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, all these uh, stickers on Lada cars, Mojem Pavtarit, we can do it again, uh, was not a great look and um, no one... It was not an official line, let's say that. And now there is a deep crisis of ideology and identity in Russia. So that's why uh, they pulled out the latest uh, propaganda gimmick of this uh, grandma with a red mm -hmm. flag. Because it's the only thing that they can possibly do. But we will talk about it later, about the ideological crisis. Uh, let's hope that uh, 9 of May parade will be... As always, great. There are now talks about uh, mobilization uh, for about two weeks now. Everyone is talking about it. Uh, for example, my older brother is convinced that uh, the Polish troops entering Ukraine would mean uh, that uh, all Russian men will be mobilized. Um, but then again, he is traumatized by taking part in Second Chechen War. So what do you think about such uh, prospects? Mm, well, I don't think that there will be general mobilization that's unnecessary and impossible. At the very least, it would be a logistical nightmare. 
logistics has never been the strong suit of the Russian army, so uh, I don't see how they would uh, arm and equip uh, like 5 million people. <laughs> and train. Yeah, I already mentioned this in the interview with Clint Ehrlich. There are 900,000 contract soldiers in the Russian armed forces. Something like one-fourth of them is currently in Ukraine. So there is a lot of potential there to bring more troops there without mobilizing anyone. And if they need to mobilize, then there are 2 million people in the reserves. Uh, so, of course, those would be called up way before, um, like, conscripting people. Yeah. Um, I think that in the best people are convinced that Russia is also in a state of war, meaning that uh, people are actively preparing for it or they're in a panic mode or uh, some kind of chaos is happening because like Coca-Cola is leaving and uh, <laughs> mobilization is around the corner. But if you actually walk the streets and talk with regular people, you would never know there is a war. Nothing of this nature, not even a larger crisis. Basically, all the differences, uh, prices are a bit different. But the same story can be told about Europe and US. So, uh, really nothing. No, no one is prepared for mobilization. No one is willing to also. It will be not only a logistical crisis. It will be a moral crisis as well. Because can you imagine the amount of moms yeah, protesting? Yeah, oh, it will be devastating. To it will the Russian moms will actually topple Putin <laughs> if it happens. They will destroy him. So no chance. I don't think so. But we are great predictors, as you all know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, <laughs> let's hope we are right this time. Um, but the sim symbolism of 9 of May, and as we know, uh, Kremlin likes to do everything in a symbolic fashion, like um, invading Ukraine after the 23rd uh, of uh, February, right? Which is also very symbolic. Mm -hmm. So maybe they have something in store for us uh, one way or another. Um, so I guess let's talk sweet rap. What happened in the last three or so weeks uh, we haven't spoke to you? Right, so, um, well, let's just start clockwise um, on the map in the north, Kharkiv. Um, there has been something resembling a Ukrainian counter-offensive. There are very few Russian troops uh, around Kharkiv right now. Um, they were mostly there to protect the flank of the Izum offensive the Izum operation and uh, since shaping operation is mostly done now and the front lines have the shape that uh, is required for further movement down south from Izum, um, it's not really necessary to uh, keep large amounts of troops uh, north of Kharkiv. And so the Ukrainians have taken three or four villages, I believe, somewhere in the gray zone. Um, Ruska was a wire. Yeah, they have tried attacking uh, Kazacha Urpan again uh, unsuccessfully. They have attacked Sirkuni unsuccessfully. 
Um, they took heavy losses uh, near Alexandrovka while trying to attack it. Uh, some um, colonel, some important colonel was killed there who supposedly was an expert in uh, Western weapons and who served as a mercenary uh, alongside Westerners uh, in many places. So, yeah, um, it is not... The thing is that the Ukrainians know that their only chance at not getting annihilated uh, by Russian artillery is to stay in the cities because the Russian armed forces don't like bombing cities. And that's why they don't use uh, high-quality troops for the counter-offensive at Kharkov. Uh, so they use like reservists and volunteer troops like the uh, Azov Kraken guys, um, ideological troops and so, and so on. So, of course, they're, uh, it's not super successful and they're taking heavy losses when they leave the protection of the residential areas of Kharkov. And yeah, so it, I don't think that uh, we're going to see much more movement around Tarkov in the coming days. Then next on we have the Izum front, where there is uh, constant uh, slow progress. Several important uh, points have been taken in that direction. Um, Russian troops are now uh, have taken Suigovka. They've also expanded to the west, to Zavode and Andreevka to protect the Donbass um, cauldron or the several Donbass cauldrons that are being formed right now. There's also an advance on um, Alexandrovka and uh, Shandrigova. There is no fighting around Novosyolovka. Uh, so, yeah, Stavki has also been taken, I think. Um, there are supposedly a bunch of Ukrainian soldiers encircled uh, at Askol, near the uh, Askol River, um, yeah, north of uh, Suhae Kaminka. Um, Russian troops are basically now 35 kilometers from Slavyansk in the northwest and have reached the border between Kharkov and Donetsk Oboist, going south from Izum. At the same time, um, there is also movement uh, movement forward a bit further to the east. Yampol has been taken. Um, there is now fighting for Liman. I guess there will be kind of a cauldron forming there, uh, or half cauldron forming around Slavyansk. Um, there are some news that uh, troops have also, Russian troops have uh, forced the Siversky Donetsk River a bit further to the east again um, in Bilogorovka. So I don't know how many or what kind of troops are there, but um, at least recon or special forces units have crossed the river, which is very important. So also crossing um, into Donetsk Oblast from Lugansk. Um, the Ukrainian positions in Severodonetsk are becoming untenable. It's uh, either they are going to retreat from Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, 
or they are gonna get surrounded and uh, get another Mariupol there. So that is only a question of time. Uh, further, clockwise, um, yeah, we have uh, Papasne has finally been taken after two months of extremely heavy fighting where a whole bunch of different troops were involved. So from the Russian side there were the Lugansk People's Militia, the Armed Forces of Russia, uh, Chechen troops and Wagner. So uh, yeah, from what I can tell it was the Wagner assault groups who finally uh, broke this, the stalemate in Popasne. And uh, yeah. There Do you, you think that uh, uh, Russians taking Popasne uh, that's why Ukrainians had to act in some way to destroy the news cycle. So uh, the media will not talk about Papasne and focus its attention to uh, the attempted Ukrainian counterattack near Kharkiv. Uh, yes, I think so. It's sadly that's what the Ukrainians do a lot, that they do military actions for the sake of the media image. That is a very bad way to conduct military operations. Um, luckily, the Russian armed forces don't do this. Um, you know all that stuff about uh, like uh, taking something important for May 9th and uh, stuff like this. Uh, the Russian army doesn't do this. That's very good. Uh, the Ukrainian army is way more Soviet in that sense that they are constantly trying to get these symbolic PR victories. Um, but yeah. We, we, we probably should expect another PR victory of Ukraine on 9th of May. Yeah, they are it's, definitely going to try something tomorrow. Absolutely. It's predictable, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Right? So, Papasne. Uh, Papasne is important. It had basically the heaviest defenses. It's the heaviest defense line. Uh, along with Marienka for the south, um, and it has finally been broken. It is also um, on a height, so it's like 150 to 200 meters above uh, everything else around. Russian artillery can now conduct very deep strikes against uh, the Ukrainian rear in Artyomovsk. And, uh, of course, they could go north, um, it's only 40 kilometers to Belogorovka, which I talked about a moment ago, and that would achieve a complete encirclement of Ukrainian troops in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. They, I don't know if uh, Russian command is going to go for this, or if they're just going to take it slow, but they could just uh, throw the troops from Popasna north and uh, cut off basically the Ukrainian retreat and uh, destroy all Ukrainian troops in the area. That is a possibility. Uh, they could also go west to Artyomovsk or Bakhmut, as it is now called. Um, so Papasne is in any case extremely important. Uh, a lot of troops were there for two months uh, who are now free to advance. Uh, on the rest of the Donbass front, there are not Many, uh, well, not too much has changed. In Marienka, uh, there's still a stalemate, more or less. Um, on the southern front, there's also not much happening. So, yeah, ah, except one thing on the um, 
on the southern front was the unsuccessful Ukrainian attack on Snake Island. Uh, yeah. You know the famous um, Russian warship, go fuck yourself, and uh, stuff like this. So it's not completely clear what exactly happened, but from the looks of it, um, the Ukrainians, so like a few days ago, they destroyed an anti-air TOR missile system on Snake Island and damaged or destroyed uh, two Russian boats. And from the looks of it, the Russian armed forces, they removed the garrison from Snake Island, but kept some anti-air uh, capabilities there and uh, basically to bait the Ukrainians into an attack on Snake Island. Uh, it looks like it worked. The Ukrainians attacked Snake Island and took heavy aircraft losses in the process and possibly uh, a boat as well. Uh, one full of soldiers. I heard that uh, the attacks on uh, Snake Island is very important for Turkey to show off the Bayraktar capabilities. Uh, yes, that is um, a theory that has been going around now in Ukrainian Telegram channels that it's Turkey uh, pressuring the Ukrainians to do something successful with the Bayraktars because after the uh, successes against unguarded uh, supply convoys in the first uh, week of the war. There hasn't been much Bayraktar action. It's been before they uh, used them on Snake Island. It had been like five or six weeks uh, where we haven't seen any Bayraktar action at all. Uh, or any successful at least. There were a couple shot down. So it's possible that Turkey would like the Ukrainians to score some PR victories with the Bayraktars to, for marketing purposes. It's actually, it uh, must really suck that Ukraine depends so much on foreign aid um, that basically they have to do, they have to advertise the weapons they are being given so they uh, become more popular and can be sold for more money. Oh yeah, I think uh, Turkey needs to do an updated version of Bayraktar with a coxal baba strapped uh, onto it. <laughs> it will be more deadly this way. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's um, I think about it. Avdeevka, there has been some uh, movement near Avdeevka, but not much. Uh, mostly just artillery duels right now on the southern uh, part of the Donbass front. Uh, Mariupol, um, according to the Ukrainian government, um, all civilians are now evacuated from Azovstal. According to Azov, um, this is not true. So who knows? Um, it's, I mean, I don't know about the civilians there, if it's actually civilians or if it's like... Um, you know, Azov fanboys or Azov families or just random people taken hostage. Uh, who the fuck knows? Um, people of Swastika. Yeah. Uh, in any case, um, there has been that interview with the wives of Azov fighters in Italian TV 
where they just openly say that if the civilians leave, then like Azov becomes an easy target. I don't know. It's kind of incredible that they can just openly say this, that uh, uh, like openly admit to being terrorists. This mm-hmm. is what they've done. They've openly admitted to being terrorists. They have also uh, what has been reported that they offer to release civilians in exchange for food. And uh, Khodakovsky, commander of the Vostok battalion, said that they agreed to this for the sake of the civilians. So, I don't know. In any case, uh, Azov style isn't really important anymore. I don't think they have any more like offensive capabilities. Uh, they can't. They don't have anything that can shoot further than the Azov style territory. Uh, they're running out of food. The ones who get caught look like they haven't eaten in weeks. Um, there was a, an Instagram post. Uh, I don't know if it was real, but uh, it was supposedly a photo of the Azov people uh, in the bunkers eating dog food. It was Mivina, let's be fair. <laughs> Mivina, I don't know. Right, uh, so I think that's about it for the military situation right now. Um, the places to watch right now are Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. First of all, or the whole cauldron, let's say it, uh, from between the Seversky Donetsk River and Popasne. That's where the action is going to be in the coming days. Uh, and also um, Liman. So, is this all the promised phase two of the war? Or it actually hasn't started yet? Well, there has there has been some uh, intensification in terms of uh, both missile strikes and advancements. There have basically been advancements uh, everywhere, south of Izum. On all fronts, there has been some movement, but it's not a full-scale offensive. Absolutely not. It's. Uh, I don't know if the term phase two is appropriate. Uh, it doesn't look like the Russian army is rushing. Mm, they're taking their time. They are finally um, doing what the Russian army is supposed to do, according to its military doctrine. Namely, killing everything with artillery. All that stuff was like lightly armored uh, Tigers and Batayers, like uh, driving 200 kilometers deep into the enemy lines and stuff like this. It's uh, all, it looks cool and it's heroic, but it's not what the Russian army is supposed to fight. Like the Russian army doctrine is uh, very artillery heavy. Uh, the BTGs are like mostly artillery with some infantry attached and. Um, it's just the Russian way of war to move slowly, kill everything with artillery, especially uh, rocket artillery, MLRS, and then keep moving and just like grind down the enemy. And that's exactly what's happening right now. They probably wanted to fit their special operation line. Uh, with uh, all those maneuvers. Mm-hmm. But now it increasingly looks less uh, like a special operation, but an actual traditional Russian way of war. Yeah. All right, so let's discuss uh, American land lease for a bit, because we should probably not 
Um, it should probably not be under discussed uh, because uh, let's not forget that uh, American land lease during uh, World War II was quite detrimental to the Soviet success. So now what is, uh, in your opinion, the largest uh, difference between the official land lease program and like random shipments of weapons by uh, Raytheon and stuff like that? Mm, well, the land lease uh, thing, it basically allows the Americans to send everything they have, except for nuclear weapons. So everything that is uh, that the American uh, armed forces have, they can now send to Ukraine. Um, the problem is that um, what the Ukrainians need most of all is uh, shells for old Soviet artillery and fuel. And those are both things that the uh, West cannot easily provide. They can send some fancy artillery. They have done so. Um, the M777 and those German artillery guns, they are great. They are really good. But um, they won't change much because there's just too few of them. The Ukrainians had too little time to get acquainted with them. They can't bring enough shelves for more than like a week or two of intense fighting. And uh, most of all, is you need complicated logistical chain chains to support. Um, this kind of firepower and Ukraine doesn't have those. It's going to be a mix of a whole bunch of different, uh, like armored personnel carriers, artillery guns, um, and, and everything else, tanks, and they are all different. They they need to be repaired. They need spare parts. They need uh, like special instruments. They need tires. Uh, they need shells. They need to be maintained. They need technicians who know how to maintain them. And a modern military has a very centralized uh, logistics for a reason. Because it is super complicated to keep this shit running. Um, even in peacetime, it's hard to keep things running. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, stuff like tanks or helicopters or whatever. Uh, basically, in any peacetime military, you rarely have an situation where over 70 or 75 percent of it is uh, action ready at any given moment and in war this uh, breaks down a bit because of course you have losses and especially if it's like foreign stuff that you don't know how to repair or maintain or don't have any experience with uh, it's gonna be it can hurt the Russian armed forces, depending on how it's used, of course. Um, I thought that they got the new American artillery guns to uh, Izium, or some of them at least. But that's like a one-time trick. If it, uh, it's just until the next shipment. Also, Russia has finally started destroying um, the infrastructure necessary to uh, maintain all that stuff and to bring it to the front lines, which is the greatest problem. Aside from the fact that uh, Western Ukrainians just keep some of the juiciest stuff for themselves and don't even try to send it to the East. Well, yeah, uh, I think that's actually the objective because uh, it's hard to ship all this uh, to Izum 
it's quite pointless, uh, but it's uh, very convenient to have all of this in Western and Central Ukraine to uh, further defend it. And also, U.S. can't uh, just send its uh, more and more PMCs and technicians or whatever via Poland, and safely so. Uh, to train the locals to how to use the weaponry and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. Um, They're they... preparing for phase three, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I don't know about central Ukraine, but uh, western Ukraine definitely. Especially since like the western Ukrainians aren't very eager to go to the front lines. Um, because as uh, they believe that fighting is uh, something for dirty orthodox skidniki uh, to do and not for glorious uh, glorious galicians um so yeah i guess uh, western ukraine will have a super strong well equipped army at the end of the war <laughs> yeah yeah all right so uh, what's what about uh, the polish intervention what should uh, people expect of it Ooh, that's a very difficult question. Mm. I do believe that there are plans for this, definitely. Uh, they are ready to go, I guess, but I don't know if they actually will. Because basically the moment Polish troops enter Western Ukraine, they are not protected by NATO Article 5 anymore. Uh, they are... I mean, it would be kind of suicidal, I guess, um, because Russia would probably... I mean, that's one of the scenarios that can lead to very bad stuff happening. Like a full-scale Polish or Romanian or both intervention is one of the scenarios that can easily lead to tactical nuclear weapons being deployed. Mm. Yeah. Aside from that... Uh, the Russian armed forces are very hesitant in bombing Kiev, Kharkiv, Zaporozhye, Dnipropetrovsk, Poltava, um, because they, well, they have sympathy for them, but no such sympathy will be shown to Warsaw and Bucharest in case that they involve themselves in the war. So that would uh, probably be very bad. I guess a limited, uh, like, peacekeeping contingent in uh, Galicia is possible that the Ukrainians would just take Lvov. And, uh, I mean, Galicians are kind of used to being under Polish rule or to kill Poles whenever it uh, is possible. But it's kind of a love-hate relationship. It's... Well, you know, um, it makes sense that uh, Mr. Leopold von Sacher Mazoch, the guy who invented masochism, uh, was a native of the city of Lvov. So they know what's it about. Mm. <laughs> well, the Polish are now drawing all sorts of maps of uh, supposed Ukrainian-Polish Union, in uh, Lvov being the capital of it. A very weird map, I gotta say. But it uh, looks like Rich Pospolita quite a bit. Yeah, the f final incarnation of the Intermarium Buttered build. 
<laughs> yeah, but uh, the problem with uh, Poles, I, I don't think that the Polish army is very battle-hardened. Uh, neither is Roma- Romanian. So either they will defend the Western premises or uh, they will be needed to escalate the nuclear exchange, which is, uh, well, maybe we will see then the all uh, male mobilization in Russia only then and finally see does uh, Burivesnik work and uh, <laughs> Poseidon and Burivesnik but we will talk about it later um, so yeah RWA was invited uh, to do an interview for a site I am 1776 uh, so uh, there was a statement by Clint uh, it seems uh, that the most decisive victories for Ukraine have been in the area of uh, molding international perception, looking at not just uh, the traditional Western media landscape, but also the social media. We can conclude that uh, Russians can't meme. I want to expand on this uh, a little bit. Uh, I just thought that uh, sometimes uh, it's better to be a latecomer. Uh, to forego the unfortunate stages of uh, technology and to basically reap all the fruits of the labor of others. Um, Something of this nature happened uh, in the banking system. For example, European banking dates uh, way back, right? And post-Soviet banking systems are basically infants compared to Europe. But for the customer, it's not always bad. On the contrary, Russian banking is much more developed and convenient than European one. Europeans are, if I'm not mistaken, to this day are capable of writing checks and doing all sorts of antiquated operations that only slow everything down. Russian banks, because they're so immature, (laughs) completely missed all the crap from the past and are now able to provide seamless and... Uh, completely online banking. The similar principle can be applied to Ukraine uh, with regards to informational technology. How did Ukraine uh, jump over its head uh, so high, being a slightly more rural, slightly poorer version of Russia? How can they win the meme war, so to speak? Uh, Well, because... Ukraine was, uh, since 91, was also lagging behind, but not only Europe, but uh, after Russia as well. If Russia started to recover from the post-Soviet collapse, uh, Soviet collapse uh, in early 2000s, producing many analog media like TV shows, music, pre-internet stuff, Ukraine had the similar process of awakening in the 2010s when internet penetrated most of the country. So Ukrainians outperforming Russians in the armchair war on the internet, that's a fact, because they came so late on the scene and skipped all the garbage, basically, and focused on the internet from the start. And moreover, we shared the same language, so they penetrated the Russian entertainment industry online. Most of the audience, especially kids, um, don't have any idea that they followed uh, and liked Ukrainian influencers and producers. 
I have read today a wild story. So a uh, Ukrainian TikTok producer, uh, basically a slaver of uh, hundreds of uh, teenagers uh, who uh, do their silly dances, but uh, he gets a lot of cash from this. Uh, so he worked with Russian TikTokers. And in uh, 21, he even got the Russian award, like the best blogger or something th like that of the year. So that allowed him to take Russian government grants. So he took 15 million rubles to do some kind of uh, pro-government uh, advertisement. <laughs> and then the war happened. Uh, naturally, he became a very Svidomi nationalist. He took uh, all the money and he decided to do a trickery. He sent out to hundreds of his uh, enslaved Russian TikTok bloggers an objective to do uh, a weird advertisement in which pro-Ukrainian propaganda was coded into, using Russian government money for it. They did basically their Ukrainian propaganda for free, and he pocketed the Russian money, Russian 15 million rubles for it, and uh, did a mocking uh, video about it, mocking the Russian TikTokers, Russian government, and he was quite uh, right in doing this. More than that, he wants all the TikTokers uh, to be basically arrested by FSB, because they are now uh, foreign agents unknowingly advocating for Ukraine and spreading Ukrainian propaganda. That's just a single episode of uh, Ukrainians outperforming Russians on the internet and using the uh, absolutely pointless uh, programs that Russian government has for boosting the loyalism of the populace. And uh, yeah, it's everywhere. Uh, the uh, like kids' entertainment channels, uh, the a famous travel show, maybe you've heard of it, Aryol Reshka, Heads or Tales, that every Russian watched suddenly started spreading like gore photos of uh, various soldiers, and uh, it was quite out of nowhere because compared to it, uh, the Russian blogosphere, uh, much larger than Ukrainian ones, apparently it turned out was infiltrated uh, from the start. What does it teach us? Uh, sometimes it's better to come late and uh, the most motivated people always outperform the more sleepy ones. Let me add something um, okay. to what you said about the effectiveness of uh, the Ukrainian media machine. Um, there are basically two... Well, I agree with everything you said. It's all correct, but I would add two important aspects. One uh, quite obvious one that we don't have to dwell much upon uh, is that uh, the Ukrainian government is aided by a whole bunch of top-tier Western PR agencies and the whole Western media machine. Um, but that is obvious, I think, to anyone. And the second one um, is that we shouldn't forget that Ukraine is in many ways a revolutionary state in the literal meaning of the world. Uh, it had a profound revolution in 2014. And like um, revolutionary states like uh, France after its revolution or the early Soviet Union, they have a whole bunch of problems. 
and uh, most often a degeneration of the of governance quality and uh, many other things but there inevitably there are some aspects in which a revolution uh, also makes a country more advanced in the case of ukraine it is uh, specifically that bloggers youtubers tiktokers and so on are um, an integrated part of the government elite and an important one uh, basically the like instagram grifters and uh, ebook hucksters and uh, all this uh, kind of uh, like uh, foremost internet advertising people uh, they are legitimately integrated into the ukrainian government like the most important person in ukraine right now in terms of propaganda aristovich we talked about him he is basically what is called an infotsigan in russia um information gypsy yes uh, so that's what uh, like all these online grifters are called in russia and uh, these people are basically an arm of the ukrainian government and of course like online autism is a very powerful weapon and the ukrainians are one or maybe the only country in the world that has managed to make it basically and uh, like have a informal ministry of shitposting yeah. which is super effective exactly it's also because ukrainian uh, government figures are much younger uh, they're about like 45 uh, that's years true on average while whereas russians well it's probably around 60 or 65 mm -hmm. so yeah, a 20 year gap ah and also uh and also like um this has been noted by many people in russia but with the start of the special military operation a lot of cyber crime and internet scams have suddenly stopped in russia because these were all run out of um, out of Ukraine, they have a lot of like institutional level experience with all kinds of uh, internet uh, crime and other uh, stuff, and that easily translates into information warfare capabilities. Yeah, but uh, not even because of the Western support. Uh, Ukraine historically was a nation of singers, performers, and uh, swindlers like a stop bender so they're naturally good at this uh, but and uh, the problem that russian political boomers are very wary of uh, internet uh, they think that it's a cause of revolution and they write about it uh, but because of all of this ukrainians know exactly what uh, they believe in well most of them they know who are the orcs who are the elves what are they fighting for who they're fighting against uh, in russia it's very vague it's most popular line is uh, that we are fighting nazis or we are protecting donbass or we're defending against nato and uh, all of this doesn't really connect to each other uh, it's hard to formulate a single idea of what is happening. Probably the most um, agreed-upon figure uh, right now, a symbol of um, a special operation for a time being, is now a grandma, a Ukrainian grandma from a famous video. 
well, uh, Ukrainian troops are entering some village in Ukraine and uh, a grandma greets them. She's delighted that they came, but she thinks that it's actually Russian troops. And she greets them with a red flag in her arms, uh, with a hammer and sickle. <laughs> and uh, uh, she's uh, very disappointed to find out that they're actually Ukrainian. And she refuses to take any food from them. And uh, they began to humiliate her. They took the flag and started stomping it. Uh, typical Ukrainian behavior. So, uh, slighted grandma. Well, yeah, every Russian was compassionate about this. And uh, like a month later uh, from this video, some activists uh, began constructing monuments in the likeness of this grandma, uh, in her uh, horrible <laughs> village outfit, in a galoshi with a red flag. And, and now it stands uh, in Moscow, uh, some private people are doing it. It's not an official, of course, but uh, it's semi-official, let's say that. Uh, or is it official? In Melitopol, I believe, right? In Kherson, there are some... Yeah. I think so. Sculptures. So, well, it's uh, what is more painful about it. Not because uh, not because we are not very pro-Soviet or something, but uh, it it basically repeats the same line that Western analysts are promoting that Putin wants uh, USSR 2.0, right? And this is uh, a perfect confirmation for it. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is a USSR 2.0 because uh, they are now bowing down to this uh, communist grandma. It's not a good look uh, in my book. I, I don't see how it's useful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I generally don't like like using uh, the elderly in propaganda. It's a confused old woman. Uh, by now, some Ukrainian Nazis have found her. Uh, and made her say that she's against the war and stuff like this. So it's it's all just a bad look overall. But uh, why do they do it? Not because Russia is genuinely communist or uh, we try to rebuild USSR. No, it just there are no uh, solid new ideas that can unite even the soldiers, even like uh, the Donbass soldiers and the Russian troops uh, to have uh, some clear vision of what is happening or what they're fighting for. What do you think it can be, the positive new Russian vision? Well, I think, um, I guess one the, um, way is just going even further to the past um like going so far into the past that it's not real anymore and you can do whatever you want with it it's what the ukrainians do um but for russia just uh, like in kherson for example the coat of arms in kherson is the same as in the russian empire the new one uh, introduced by the military civil administration there are a lot of like uh, monarchist flags uh, among soldiers in both Donbass and the Russian army. I guess in terms of aesthetics, that beats uh, the Soviet Union at least. Of course, it's still not a new idea. Um, although 
I think we talked about this in one of the Citrap episodes that um, there are basically two different kinds of pro-Russian ideology in uh, Novorossiya with the more pro-Soviet nostalgic thing in Donbass and uh, among pro-Russians in like places like Odessa or Kherson, it's more the uh, Novorossiya idea the imperial Novorossiya idea, um, which is like, uh, you know, all that uh, right-wing, semi-libertarian, uh, clean streets, uh, neoclassic uh, neo buildings, uh, Romanov flags, and uh, all that stuff. Well, that is... yeah, but looking back in the past, uh, will only bring us to... Uh, the weird, um, ambiguous, nutsball, confused nutsball. I agree, uh, I agree. There, there needs to be a, a positive vision as well, which the Russian state is sorely lacking in. Um, they managed but... to do it uh, in 2014 with the clean and crisp uh, tactical mm-hmm. look. Uh, basically, the ideology is... Uh, uh, we have a great army. That's the entire ideology. <laughs> uh, the, and by the power of Russian weaponry, we can prove it to you. That's, uh, I think, that's all. I think actually one of the um, most succinct formulations of the current Russian ideology uh, was that one video that was very popular for one time. I don't remember what year it came out. Was it 2014 or 15? Um, the Yaruski Akupant video, mm-hmm. um, which uh, I don't know if how well known it was in the West. I think it was right after Crimea sometime. I don't know who made it. I think some. It was uh, made by Maidax Vision, I think. Yes, yes, yes. That is a Kremlin aligned PR agency. But very successful one. Yes. So, um, yes, they have produced a bunch of stuff that was, like, pro-government. So, basically, the video uh, was, like, um, the narrator was talking about, uh, like, how Russians are being vilified as occupiers in a lot of countries uh, that surround it, the former Soviet countries. It was basically talking about how, like, uh, when it was under Russian rule, uh, before Russian rule, everything was bad. Under Russian rule, everything was good. Then the Russians left, and now everything sucks again. That was the main uh, thing of the video. So it's kind of like, you know, how the, the French the French ideology in the 19th century, like the uh, civilization mission, kind of. Yeah, but the problem that uh, many Ukrainians don't believe in that Russian can civilize because they've been on the Russian internet so much and they mm-hmm. were a victim of uh, anti-Russian propaganda for so long, they believe that Ukraine is more prosperous than Russia, pre-war Ukraine. And it sucks now only because I of still, Russians. I, and, uh, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I still can't believe that. Like that they actually believe this. It's, yeah, it's, they it's, actually it's, it's, do. It's comp- it's the, it's it's completely insane to me. Well, they like do. how like how you can they many of them have been to Russia. Like like what the fuck? I mean, I have been to Ukraine. I have I I've taken a crane across uh, a train across half of Ukraine. And looking out the window, I felt like like I'm in the Soviet Union in 1951. And if you enter Western Ukraine, 
from a train. It just feels like you're driving through Austria-Hungary in 1913. It's insane. <laughs> like they, they literally, the farmers don't have tractors. They use horses for their fields. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like I tried to look it up. I uh, took some absolutely random place in Western Ukraine on uh, Google Maps, and you could see farmers uh, with with horses plowing the fields. Um, it's just so backward and poor. But uh, Ukrainians are romantics, and uh, Russians are very. Um, we are a proud nation, but we are also very defeatist, right? And uh, a lot of the stuff uh, that you can hear from a Russian is not a boastful. Russian will not boast about uh, any accomplishment. Uh, he will say that, oh, the elites have stolen everything. Uh, the country is dying. This is the basic uh, Russian outlook. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. Uh, they will always uh, tell you about it. And Ukrainians uh, being Russian, well, uh, they are Russian, but they can like pretend that it doesn't concern uh, them. They can do this weird psychological war between us. So uh, they will take in all the bad about Russia. And they will filter out the rest. And uh, that's what they're basically doing right now. They, uh, the main argument is that, yeah, in Moscow there is something in St. Petersburg, but Russians don't have toilets. Because I have read one uh, Echo of Moscow article in 2015 uh, where they visited the poorest village. And that's what entire Russia is, and we don't care for you. So uh, Russians are not like the French. I know, we can't really present ourselves uh, to uh, the other people, even if they speak Russian and they know perfectly well what's happening. Well, I have read actually a very interesting blog by a Mariupol girl that was describing uh, what she lived through, uh, the destruction of Mariupol, uh, the uh, exile, uh, she repatriated to Russia, where her relatives uh, live, but because she is convinced that Russia will become like the Soviet Union, and what's uh, hilarious, that Mariupol had better life before war than Moscow, she literally uh, said that, and she's not a propagandist, it's a small block. Uh, she decided to go via Estonia, via Poland, to France. And uh, there she completely forgot about the war, about uh, Mariupol, about her great-grandmas uh, in the basements. And now she's delighted at, uh, in working at uh, the French croissant plant uh, besides uh, North Africans. Uh, she only uh, knows one word. Uncruyable, <laughs> which she pronounces this way. The story that I translated of uh, Kevin Zabushko, it's very uh, prescient and uh, a lot of Ukrainians actually think like that. So I don't know how to change that, but I guess uh, the funding of uh, capable propaganda networks uh, like uh, studios like My Dark Vision could have uh, changed something. But unfortunately, the Political Russian political boomers are not do not trust the internet and they only know how to 
shut some side down and they think that it will solve all the problems. Actually, even the Russian ultra-loyalists are very defeatist, are very critical. There, there are no uh, such patriots in any other country that will <laughs> not only... Uh, there are like the mo basic uh, Russian loyalists and patriots who supports 100% the special operation wishes uh, for Putin to hang from a tree. Uh, the, uh, I don't know. It's a complete failure on information war. Let's hope that uh, the guns will do the talking. This is our only hope at this point. All right. Yeah. Another topic is uh, ruble. Ruble's uh, insane rally to the top. Uh, it's uh, insane strengthening in the last month or so. Uh, it's now not even back to pre-war status, but it's much better than pre-war. It's uh, better than it ever was uh, in the last uh, two years. Yes, uh, it was achieved by various tricks, uh, by um, regular people not being able to buy dollars in Russian banks and uh, very careful planning and restrictions. But I think it's uh, temporary, but we'll see. What about the gas prices? Have you checked? Uh, no, I haven't followed that stuff in a while, actually. Yeah, um, I forgot about economy. <laughs> I mean, economy. I mean, economy isn't real anyway. Uh, at yeah. least the part with the graphs and the numbers, uh, like uh, that's all just made up by people playing with calculators. It's, it's <laughs> not. It's not real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, real stuff is like it's like food and uh, grain and gas and electricity and that fertilizers stuff. all the stuff that uh, is not going uh, to the western countries yeah i mean you always have uh, like this argument that uh, russia's gdp is smaller than that of texas or it's like italy it's the common yeah line. but um the thing is that like the Californian GDP is uh, like transgender hookup apps and you can't feed people with that when shit hits the fan. And uh, the Russian economy is like guns, uh, bread and uh, stuff that makes electricity. Those are real things. The stuff that much of the Western economy is based on is not real in that sense so it's it's in general gdp is not a good number to compare yeah oh i forgot to mention uh from this mariupol girls blog she literally doesn't know anything about friends she's only got in but she's um, a complete cultist of it uh, she wrote that in france even the dogs are different they don't do not bark uh, they have a very shiny fur. Uh, and um, the French uh, are not overeating. And they don't even drink alcohol. So, <laughs> incredible uh, observations by the Ukrainians in Western Europe. But the reality will be quite grim with this outlook, I think. And, uh, yeah, for, like, April, there was a free pool for all the Ukrainians so, so so they were always swimming in a free pool 
but uh, in May the free membership for Ukrainians is ending. And so there are very, in the, a million, millions of Ukrainians are for a very rude awakening, I think. Uh, being a refugee in Europe, I think it's not all that cut out to be. All right, so let's end this episode on um, the topic of Russian-used uh, weapons. In 2018, Putin presented a couple, a bunch of uh, new Russian weaponry like an experimental nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed cruise missile Burivesnik and uh, uh, unpiloted uh, underwater drone uh, Poseidon, also uh, nuclear-armed. There was a cartoon that showcases uh, how it's supposed to work, and a lot of liberals were mocking this cartoon, and uh, they also uh, called Putin like uh, going insane and uh, wishing for a a nuclear war. Those are like part of the uh, strategic weapons initiative uh, that are supposed to um, like make sure that Russia can defend itself against everything uh, that uh, the world basically has right now. Uh, Those are, um, if I remember correctly, the Burivesnik, that you mentioned, the nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed cruise missile. It's subsonic, but because it has a small nuclear reactor built inside it, and it has basically unlimited range. So it can just, like, target every single place in the world. And uh, it can hover uh, over the city, almost indefinitely, because it's nuclear-powered. Well, in any case, uh, none of that uh, will be used um, in the current conflict. If, even... No, um, yes, aside from that, uh, there's the Avangard missile, uh, which is a, um, it's not really a missile in the classical sense. It's, it's a glide vehicle. Uh, that means it doesn't have a propulsion system of its own. It basically enters uh, the atmosphere and... Uh, Glides uh, to its target. It's uh, I'm I'm not an expert on this kind of tech. Uh, I think it's called boost glide, and uh, it's also nuclear. It it can carry a MERV, pretty hefty thing. It's also hypersonic. Uh, then of course the SS-28 Sarmat, which is uh, built on the uh, it's supposed to replace the classical um, SS-18 Satan super heavy intercontinental ballistic missile and it's basically the uh, heavy hitter when it comes to uh, nukes i think uh, it has enough uh, of a payload to like just completely nuke a small country so that's pretty bad um more interesting is um i believe i mean nuclear weapons are of course interesting but uh, when it when we come that far, like, um, I don't know how important technical details are. Um, interesting is the Zircon missile. Um, it's an anti-ship hypersonic cruise missile. It's uh, similar to the uh, Kinjal, which we have already seen in action in Ukraine. And that is a hypersonic missile that reaches um, speeds at which it cannot be shot down. And it's specifically uh, to destroy ships, so it would—it's um, 
Well, basically, it's uh, to destroy American uh, aircraft carriers. And uh, the in terms of hypersonic missiles, of course, Russia is uh, very advanced. Uh, the Americans don't have anything like this as of yet. And it's uh, more or less impossible to defend against. It's um, The thing about hypersonic uh, missiles is that they are very hard to shoot down, not only because of the speed itself, but also um, at these speeds, um, there is enough... Uh, well, basically, there is... Uh, it forms air pressure in front of the projectile and it uh, forms a cloud of plasma and this cloud of plasma absorbs radio waves and that makes it invisible to radar systems so that is uh, pretty cool and um, it also has I think uh, like uh, uh, sea skimming abilities so that means it flies very low at very low heads. Um, so yes, Zircon is basically a perfect anti-ship weapon. And uh, yeah, it can be launched from the surface, from surface ships and from submarines. And there is also a land-based version in development. I think this push for new weaponry uh, started around 2014. Because uh, Russia was, uh, from the Soviet times, dependent on Ukraine to produce a lot of uh, rockets. Like uh, a lot of rocket plants uh, were located in Dnepropetrovsk. For example, the older version of uh, Sarmat, uh, Voivoda, constructed in Kabe Yuzhne in Dnepropetrovsk. So the Soviet geniuses uh, decided to make a lot of military factories in Ukraine and allowed them to leave the Union. So yeah, this departure from the joint Russian-Ukrainian military sphere and uh, it seems like uh, Russia preparing to counter America foremost. We're not preparing to uh, war uh, with Ukraine uh, with uh, the new tech. Like uh, they were not as invested in the military drone industry our version of Bayraktar is Arlan, right? Orion, Orion, Arion, yes. In Um Yes, but we don't have many of them. We have like a dozen or so. So uh, it, it hasn't been a priority for the well, yeah. Russian army. Um, although I think we've seen that um, UKFs are not all that they're uh, made out to be and like small uh, recon drones are much more important which i think it's the most important lesson of this war in terms of uh, military science like from uh, aliexpress those ones yes yes exactly i mean the military could just mass produce them um but yeah for now uh, there was a dji mavic 2 um those are enough I've tweeted about this before, that um, what militaries all over the world can learn from this war is that reconnaissance has to be as decentralized as possible. Um, recon drones should be available to basically every uh, infantry unit, every artillery unit. 
and there should be dedicated drone recon uh, platoons or maybe or squads. Uh, remember Russians um, disregarding the Bayraktar scare with that, uh, well, we will just uh, do an electromagnetic attack or some sort and uh, all the Bayraktars will fall down. Well, we are not seeing much of it, do we? Yeah, we have not seen much of uh, Russian's electronic warfare capabilities. I'm not completely sure if it's because they don't exist or because um, they don't want to use that stuff in the field out of fear of it being captured, uh, which I think is a valid uh, argument, uh, like not using the most high-tech stuff against Ukraine uh, so the Americans don't uh, get to have a look at it. Um, I think we have seen some electronic warfare capabilities in that I've seen pictures of drones uh, um, well being disabled without any obvious damage, like one of those loitering suicide drones um, from a few days ago. Um, it looked... It... Ah. Um, it uh, looked definitely not uh, as if it had been shot at as, as if mm -hmm. it just fell down so it's uh, there is probably some stuff happening but uh, not as much as people expected and uh, i'm not sure why that is <laughs> in any case in in any case uh, the um it's not uh, like the bayraktars haven't been super effective they have been effective in the very beginning against um unguarded supply convoys but uh, and like hitting civilian stuff in Belgrad Oblast and but that's about it like you don't even need to have uh, super advanced systems to shoot them down the Panzer S1 um, is more than enough uh, it can easily deal with the Bayraktars a lot of them have been shot down so yeah for the much dismay of many Theoretics, uh, the war, the modern war, uh, did not turn into some weird battle of uh, the flocks of drones, all operated by some pilot in the bunker. For... Yeah, it's it's very funny. I think we should do um, an episode on the like military science uh, or military doctrine implications of the war. I think we are. But I think we're gonna do that sometime later uh, with uh, someone who's like really an expert on the topic. Um, I'm, I'm gonna think about who to uh, ask to come to us. Maybe like uh, Scott Ritter. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe Ritter. Maybe uh, like I was more thinking about like uh, Twitter artists. Uh, like That's I don't good know. Yeah, like the like uh, the Chorne Koshka account is pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, so so, uh, Stalin Frog, uh, Armchair Warlord. Well, yeah. They all they all really know their stuff. They they are very knowledgeable, and I sometimes ask them uh, about stuff that I'm not sure about myself. I think um, uh, we were asked actually to invite uh, Chorne Koshka on the pot. So. Yes, yes, and he has agreed to uh, come on sometime. Uh, I think he uh, he said he would come on after the war, so we can really have a complete picture of everything. So let's hope that uh, the victory day will start a change for the better, for everyone, especially for uh, civilians, and uh, will swiftly put an end 
to this conflict? Right, I think that's one thing we can all agree on, uh, regardless on which side we're on or what we believe, is that uh, everyone should agree that it would be better if the war ended as soon as possible. We wish you a happy victory day. Thank you for listening and see you soon.